So uh, last week we started a new series called Joyful. We want to be people that are full of joy. That's what we want to mark our lives as followers of Christ. And so in these four weeks, we're looking in Philippians, taking an overview of this letter, and uh, we're focusing in on the aspect of joy. Uh, Because among the different themes that Paul brings out in this letter, joy and finding and having joy, that is by far the central theme of, of his letter. That's the biggest theme that he brings out. And so that's what we want to do. We want to uh, kind of mine out uh, those, those nuggets of truth and uh, focus in on, on the major uh, gold of the joy that is possible given to us for those that are in Christ uh, through him and by his Spirit. And so if you weren't here, just to kind of catch you up, uh, last week we talked about how the Holy Spirit produces joy in our lives. We said that Christ is the source of all joy, but the Holy Spirit is the conduit of that joy. He brings joy into our hearts and our minds and produces it in our lives. And just briefly to kind of highlight uh, what we focused in on last week as we began, if you weren't here, uh, we said that joy comes from praying with and for one another, that regularly doing that, making that a priority and a a regular exercise in our lives will bring us joy. We also said that partnership in the gospel, and that's uh, as one who receives the gospel and then after receiving it, being an ambassador of that gospel, that that produces joy, and that's what the Holy Spirit uses to do that. And then last but not least, uh, we saw that it's God's continual sanctifying work in our lives, making us more like Christ until we are with Christ. That produces joy in our lives. And uh, so that's what we want to pursue, and we want to be people that continually come back to those things. And so as we continue today in our pursuit of joy, in our uh, striving to be people that are joyful, uh, I want to to let you know right off the bat um, that the pursuit of unity produces joy. The pursuit of unity produces joy. And I think we, we all would agree uh, as believers in Christ, and you've heard enough messages about this, that unity is important. Unity is something we're st- to, uh, to strive for and to pursue and work toward and guard, right? I mean, unity in the church, unity in the body is of utmost importance, Uh, Jesus himself, right before he went to the cross, he took great pains to make sure that the last prayer that he prayed with and for his followers of Christ before he went to the cross, uh, of all the things he could have prayed for and of all the things he could have focused on, unity was what he chose to spend time in prayer about. Unity was what he prayed to the Father on behalf of all of his followers for. Unity is what he made sure they heard him pray. Unity. Father, I pray that they are one, even as you and I are one. And he prayed not just for the original disciples there gathered around him, but he prayed for all believers, all future believers. That's you and me. Unity has always been at the heart of our Savior, and it should be at the heart of everyone who follows him as well, all, all of us. Um, but what we don't often think about, at least I don't think we do, 
is that in the pursuit of unity, the unity we're all supposed to have, the unity that is supposed to define us as believers in Christ, I don't know that we often think of that as a source of joy. I don't know that we we give a lot of thought to the fact that the pursuit of unity itself contains joy for us and that that pursuit will produce the unity that we need. And I forgot my... My sword, excuse me, my, uh, my Bible, forgot that. That's, that's pretty bad. Uh, when the pastor forgets his Bible, you know you're in trouble, right? So um, in Philippians 2, that's where we're going to be today. And I want to draw your attention to this pursuit of unity that does absolutely produce joy. And you're going to pick that up, I hope, as we go through this and we see what Paul has to say Uh, as he continues on in this letter. So Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2 is where we're going to start focusing in on today. Here's what he says. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love or comfort of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. Now before I go to verse 2, let me point something out. Paul's use of if here isn't because he's questioning if those things are real or available. This is rhetorical. He's not, he's not wanting you to question, well, I don't know if there really is encouragement in Christ or if there really is comfort of love. I, I'm not really sure if there's fellowship with the Spirit. That's not what he's saying, okay? This if is more like since, since there are these things, or because these things are all true. And available and real. All right. I just wanted to point that out. it's a small detail, but it's an important one to understand. He is absolutely sure of these things, and he is assuming, rightly so, that the the Philippian believers that he's writing to are sure of it as well. He's just reminding them of the reality of those things, the encouragement that is found in Christ, the comfort of love. The word love there, by the way, in the Greek is agape. That's the the self-sacrificial, no-condition love uh, that, that we see in Christ Himself. The fellowship with the Spirit, that's, that's partnership. Partnership. Us partnering with the Holy Spirit and He partnering with us. If any affection and mercy, verse 2, make my... You tell me the word. What is it? Oh, come on. You can't say joy like you're miserable. Make my what? Joy, there we go, that's better. Make my joy complete. Make my joy complete by thinking the same way. Having the same love. And it's the same word, agape. The same self-sacrificing love. The same unconditional love that, that is found in Christ and is only possible, believer, only possible through Christ. Agape love, which transcends all other types of love. It transcends brotherly love. It transcends romantic love. Agape love is the supreme love. And we see it most of all, ultimately, in the person of Christ, and only through Him in a relationship with Him can we extend that kind of love to one another. That's what Paul is is reminding us of, though. That's what he's calling us to. Having the same love. And you could say one for another. 
united in spirit. And that's literally, you're going to love this, one-souled. One-souled. It's literally what he means there by, by saying you, being united in spirit. In other words, uh, as believers in Christ, as the body, we are to be so united, so together in the walk of Christianity, in the, the journey that we're all on together as those who are in Christ, so united that it's as if we share the same soul. One soul. That's what should define and mark the body of Christ, that kind of unity. United in spirit, intent on one purpose. So you see the theme here of unity, right? Unity is just over and over again mentioned in just these these two verses here. And this is what we're to pursue. And Paul said, if you do that, he's writing to the Philippian believers, and he says, Philippian church, if you will do this, if you will endeavor to do this, if this is your pursuit, if you make this your priority, this kind of unity, this pursuit of unity together, you're going to make my joy complete, full. I will be a joyful person if I know you're doing this. And just like that would be true for Paul, knowing his beloved Philippian church would be pursuing the unity in this way, and that would bring him such joy, the same, it's, it's a given, the same will be true of the Philippians as they pursue it. You with me on that? Does that make sense? So as the Philippians are pursuing what Paul is challenging them and reminding them to pursue, not only will it result in his joy, it's going to naturally, powerfully produce joy in their lives as they're pursuing those things. And my friends, the same is going to be true for you and me today. If we here at this local assembly, Faith Baptist Church, and the, the almost to the end of 2020, can we say a hallelujah for that? <laughs> I mean, wow. Almost at the end of 2020, if we will continually make this a priority for ourselves, if we will pursue this kind of unity, then just like the Philippians would have experienced joy in that pursuit and given Paul joy as he witnessed them doing that, that's what's going to happen to us as well. And that's what I want for you. And that's what I want for me. It's what I want for us. I want us to experience what it is to be joyful people. And it's going to happen as we resolve and remind each other and encourage one another to pursue unity in, in all the things that Paul mentions here in these first two verses and, and a lot of other things as well. But it's not just in the pursuit of unity that we will experience joy or that the Holy Spirit produces joy in our lives. Uh, there's also another very, very important um, area that the Holy Spirit will use to produce joy in our lives and something that we have to make uh, just as much a priority as the pursuit of unity. And that's this. Humility plus service equals joy. That's what I want you to, to know. Humility plus service equals joy. In other words, a life, it has to be a lifelong thing, a life that is full of humility and a life that is full of service will result in a life full of joy. That's what's going to happen. 
its ingredients for joy, for lifelong joy, and for a life that's full and overflowing with joy. If, if we have a, a, a constant desire and a constant decision to make sure that our life, our individual lives, are marked by humility, and we do that together, mutual humility, I, I humble myself before you and you humble yourself before me. If we're pursuing that, we're making that a priority, And in that humility, we're serving one another. So as I humble myself before you, I also decide and and make sure and strive to serve you. And I serve you in humility. And you do that to me, and we do that to one another. What a beautiful picture that would be. Don't you agree with that? Man, what what the body of Christ would actually look like what we would accomplish if we all consistently, day in, day out, decided to be humble and humble toward one another and decided that the passion of our hearts would be serving, serving one another. But humility plus service, it equals joy, and it's going to completely stand out in this undeniable contrast to the world around us. Because the world around us has neither humility nor a servant's heart. That's not in any way, shape, or form what drives the outside, unbelieving world. It's the complete opposite. So if they see us, who name the name of Christ, living in a humble servanthood manner, it's going to speak volumes to them in addition to producing joy in us. So that's what we need to make sure uh, we understand and we pursue and we strive for. Uh, humility plus service equals joy. And here's, here's a quote from Leo Tolstoy. Uh, I'm sure many of you know who Leo Tolstoy is. Uh, he was a very famous, world-famous Russian author, philosopher. He wrote War and Peace. You guys know that one? Uh, you know, like the size of, uh, of an armored car, basically, you know, War and Peace. Uh, that's, what, that's his most famous, his master work. And um, here's what he said about joy. I love this quote. Now, he, Leo Tolstoy was religious, and he had, I guess what we could say, an appreciation for Christ and the things of Christ. But Make no mistake, Leo Tolstoy was not actually a Christian. Okay, he was not a genuine follower of Christ. Uh, but here's what he said, and, and it's what makes this statement actually that more significant when you know he wasn't even really a believer. He said, "Joy can only be real if people look upon their life as a service and have a definite object in life." outside themselves. Isn't that a great quote? Man, joy is only going to be real if people look upon their life as a service and have a definite object in life outside themselves. And here's the last part of the quote, that they have to have a definite object in life outside themselves and their personal happiness. So they can't just be self-absorbed. They can't just look inwardly. They can't just live inwardly. They have to view their life, Tolstoy said, as their whole life as this, this instrument of service. 
And they have to be able to have this definite object outside of themselves and outside of their own personal happiness for joy to be real for them. What a statement. Powerful statement. And if someone that's not even a real believer can recognize the importance of this, then surely it should be true of a genuine follower of Christ, don't you think? I mean, it should absolutely be something that that we have as a priority, that we make very important. Joy is something that we all want. It's something that we all want to know and, and to have. As I said last week, though, the problem is we look so many different places, the wrong places for that joy. And often our pursuit of joy is really not a pursuit of joy at all, but rather temporary, fleeting, personal happiness. But only when we decide that it really is true, humility plus service equals joy, only when we adopt that kind of a mindset, then and only then will we really experience joy. And looking back at what Paul had to say in this letter, and in the passage we're in today, Philippians 2, um, look with me at verses 3 and 4. And this is along the, the, uh, the lines of, of the humility and the serving uh, as producing joy. Verse 3, he says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing. Don't have any aspect of your life that is driven by selfishness, self-focus, vain, selfish ambition, or conceit or arrogance. Why? Because there's no end to that. There's no end to, to any of those things. There's no end to selfish ambition. There's no end to conceit. So don't pursue that, is what Paul is saying. Do nothing from those things. But, here's a contrast, rather, in humility... In humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? Completely counterintuitive to what it means to be human. Certainly counterintuitive to our culture. And yet that's absolutely what is to mark every believer in Christ. Consider others as more important than yourselves. Verse 4, everyone should look out not only for his own interest, which we're really good at, which really comes naturally, which really comes easily, but we're not to be driven by that. Look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And that's really hard to do. Certainly it's hard to do consistently, But it is not impossible to do. By the power of the Holy Spirit, which we have in us through our relationship with Christ, it's absolutely possible. And God does not call us to, or challenge us with, or command us to do anything that He does not also supply the power and the ability to do. And that's what we have in the Spirit of God. So, what that means for us, church, is that as we seek to be joyful rather than joy empty, which I, I don't think any of us want to be. <laughs> I don't think there's any one of us that says, you know, I, I really like being, being totally empty of joy. I, I, I like being um, uh, a non-joyful, an unjoyful person. I just love it. No, no one says that. 
we, we all want to be joyful. And so as we seek to be joyful as opposed to joy empty, we have to realize, we have to believe that joy really does come by humbling ourselves and by serving others. Selfishness and pride, which does come naturally, which does come easily, selfishness and pride will not give you joy. It never will. They just leave you wanting more. They leave you wanting more and more of what feeds your selfishness. They, they leave you wanting more and more of what boosts up that already prideful ego. There's just no end to a pursuit of selfishness and pride. They'll, they'll leave you wanting more, and they'll leave you ultimately feeling empty. There's, there's no satisfying the appetite of self. I'm going to say that again. There is no satisfying the appetite of self. It's a bottomless pit. No end in sight. So, rather than going about life the way the rest of the world does, the way they pursue life, we, followers of Christ, need to instead look to Christ's example and pattern our life after His. And we see that in beautiful, heart-gripping display in what Paul says next in this passage. Look with me at verses 5 through 8 of Philippians 2. Adopt the same attitude or mindset. You could, you could say that. Uh, some of your translations might say uh, have the same mind or, or mindset. Uh, But the CSV here says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Some translations that you might have uh, says, which is yours in Christ Jesus? Have the same attitude, the same mindset, the same heart as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, that phrase means, who was very God. That means, He is the same divinity, the same full divinity, just as much God as the Father is. doesn't mean He is the Father, but it's saying what the Father is, so is the Son and the Holy Spirit, who existing in the form of God, so by nature being God, did not consider equality with God, speaking of the Father, which He had. He had equality with the Father. For all of eternity, Jesus was one with the Father. The same nature, the same power, the same character, the same hatred of of anything that is sinful, the same purpose. So He had equality with God. It was His. But he did not consider equality with God, his Father, as something to be exploited, used for his own advantage. Some translations um, say to be grasped after. He didn't consider the equality with the Father, the same divinity, which was his, as something to just 
hold on to and not ever be willing to let go of. He didn't consider the equality with God which was his as something that he would manipulate and use for his own advantage when he came to our earth and became a human. It's not what he did. Again, counterintuitive. Completely countercultural. That is not how anyone else operates. But that's how our Savior did. Look, look what he did instead. He, so he didn't consider equality with God, which was his, as something to be exploited. Instead, verse 7, instead he emptied himself by assuming or taking on to himself the form, the likeness, the nature of a servant. And literally, it's slave. Slave. Taking on the likeness of humanity. Think about it. Just think about that. The creator of everything. The one who formed Adam all the way at the beginning, out of dust. The one who, David tells us in the Psalms, knits every life together in the womb. The one who, Colossians tells us, holds everything together sustains all life, all matter by His power. That one became human. The one who gave life to all humanity took on humanity on Himself. And when He had come as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even to death on a cross. In a little less than a month, we will take a month, as we always do, to celebrate the first coming of Christ, which we just read about. And, well, we should. We should do that. We absolutely should. I love being able to, to focus a, a whole month or, or a little more um, very intentionally on the coming of Christ and the birth of our Savior. And we should do that. But we by no means should stop there. Because knowing that coming that we're getting ready to celebrate, that coming of Christ that we celebrate every Christmas, knowing that that coming involved the kenosis which is the word for what Paul is describing here. When it says that he emptied himself, that word is kenosis. He he laid aside all that was naturally, rightfully his. His divine prerogative, his divine power, all all that it meant to be the eternal Son of God. He didn't cling to it, which he could have. By rights. Instead, He let it go. He let it go. For our sake. For you and for me. And so, when we think of that, when we know that that it involved this kenosis, this emptying that Paul briefly but powerfully penned here in this passage, oh, believer, that should cause our hearts to be constantly captivated by our Creator who came to be our Savior. 
Our hearts should be constantly captivated by the One who made Himself nothing in order to give us everything. And if that doesn't give us joy, if that doesn't maintain joy in our lives, no matter what else happens around us, then we need to evaluate whether or not we have fully understood and fully received the gospel. Because that's where our joy is found, in knowing this. I mean, think about it. We, it's hard for us to give up anything, right? I mean, even small things, temporary things. It, it's hard for us to let go of anything that is ours and, you know, and that we view as important to us. Here's the eternal Son of God being willing to take on humanity onto His divinity, adding to His divinity humanity. And, and here's the other thing that maybe we don't think about as much as we should. Do you realize that the moment of the incarnation, the moment the Word became flesh, the moment our, our Creator became our Savior and added to His divinity our humanity, He kept it? Do you, do you realize that? He went to the cross and died as a human. He was risen from the dead, but He was risen from the dead as the God-man. And He will forever now, for all of eternity future, from this point on, He will always remain not just God, but God and man. So really, it was an eternal humility that He took on. And He did it for you. For you. And for me. There's joy. That's where joy comes from. That's where joy can be experienced, knowing we have a God and a Savior who loved us that much. And so, as followers of this Savior, as followers of Christ, we too are supposed to humble ourselves, considering and serving others ahead of ourselves, ahead of our agenda, ahead of our preferences, and ahead of even our own rights. We're to lay it all down as our Savior laid everything down for us. And, and you might sit there and you might agree with that and recognize that and say amen to that, and, and I hope you do, and I would assume that you do. I think most of you probably do. But the question really is, okay, where though can we find the inspiration or the motivation, the endurance to keep doing that day in and day out? I mean, that's really the question, right? Okay, so yeah, I need to do that. I need to walk in this way. I need to pattern my life after Christ who did all this for me. And I get that. And I agree with that. But how? 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 How can I find the motivation I need, the inspiration, and, and just the endurance to keep living that out? Well, the good news is, it's not a big profound mystery where we can find that. Where we can find the strength to keep going and where we can find the motivation to keep living that way. It's not a big mystery. We don't have to look very far. We don't have to look very hard. We just need to look to Jesus Himself. We need to look to Jesus Himself. Hebrews 12.2 tells us this. Hebrews 12.2 Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. 
Some translations, yours might say, the author and finisher of our faith. Both work, both are powerful, both are beautiful, both are true. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How in the world could Jesus look at the cross and say, I count it all joy? Knowing what the cross did. Knowing that it, every single time, was successful in killing its victim. Knowing every single time it, it put the person on, whoever it was that was on the cross, it put them through hours, sometimes days, of unimaginable agony. Knowing for Him, beyond the physical, knowing Him being on the cross, taking all of our sin, your sin, my sin, every single sin on Himself, becoming sin before the Father, knowing it would cause His Father to turn away, to forsake Him for the first time in eternity. Never before in all of eternity, in His eternal existence, had Jesus known what it was like to be forsaken by His Father. But up on the cross, that's exactly what He knew. That's exactly what He experienced. That's exactly what He felt. Abandoned by His own Father. That's why He cried out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? So how could He, for the joy set before Him, going to the cross, endure it? The answer is because He knew what it was going to accomplish. He knew that the going to the cross and enduring all that would result in our salvation. It would result in our adoption by the Father that judged His Son instead of us. That's what He knew. It's what He knew would take place. That's why He was able to say, I look at that as as an instrument of joy. And that's how I'm going to be able to endure it. You see, Christ's humility and His self-sacrifice on the cross, it was messy. It was painful. It was undignified. But what it accomplished brought joy to Him and it bought joy for us. It bought our joy. And that's why it brought Him joy. He knew that going to that cross, enduring all that He was going to endure, that it accomplished everything we would need that we could never provide for ourselves. He knew He was going to be purchasing for Himself a people, a possession, a holy, beautiful, spotless bride. Not because we in ourselves are spotless or beautiful, but because He was going to extend His righteousness and His beauty onto us. And the Father would be able to look at us, you and me, and say, beautiful, accepted, adopted, all because of what Jesus accomplished and endured on the cross for us. And so, my fellow brothers and sisters, the only logical response is that we would humble ourselves 
and serve with our lives the way Jesus did for us. And yeah, like him, it's going to get messy. Humbling ourselves for the sake of others and serving others, it's messy. It's not always pretty. It's painful sometimes. It's uncomfortable. It can be undignified. But all of it is absolutely necessary. And all of it will absolutely produce the joy that we all want and that we all have available. Let me pray for for you, for us. Father, I thank you for your word. It's living, it's powerful, it's active, it's relevant, and it's so encouraging. Thank you, as, as we were reminded today, of the unimaginable willingness of your Son, your eternal, perfect, all-powerful Son, who made the entire universe to be willing, willing to leave your side, to leave his throne, to leave the perfection of heaven and come to this earth that he created and yet totally rebelled against him and being willing to come and take on humanity, all to give that humanity in a horrible death, all to give us life. Thank you for the reminder of your word and through your servant Paul that the pursuit of unity that we all need to be pursuing is in itself, in that exercise, in that action, it's in itself a source of joy for us. And help us to to be unified in all things. And to have that as our highest priority. And as we're doing that, help us to be people that are humble with our lives, that are, that are serving with our lives, knowing that that will result in joy for us. Help us by the power of Your Spirit to do these things day in, day out, no matter what. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray with praise. Amen.